am Sassanax. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanax Files. This week, I'm discussing the penultimate episode of Season 6, Sticks and Stones. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanax Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanax Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Sticks and Stones. So this episode actually started off in kind of a surprising place for me. I was not expecting the cold open that we got. And honestly, I really liked it because... It was a bit of the shock value of it, right? And it wasn't originally written that way. The initial open of this episode was Lizzie running through the woods and having a mysterious person chasing her only to find out that it was actually Joe and Kezi and they were playing around. But it kind of gave this heightened sense of awareness of the potential that someone is out running around killing young single women. That was an interesting option, but I really like the way that they went with Malva's confession in front of the congregation being what we see to open this episode, given how the last episode ended with Claire finding Malva's body in the garden. Seeing Malva alive, but in this situation that was kind of touched upon in the last episode, but not really expanded upon, it was really interesting. And I was listening to the official podcast for this episode, and the writer, Danielle Barrow, was discussing with Tony Graffia that it was kind of something she saw in Tony's script and was like, oh, that's interesting. Let's kind of pick up on that. It was kind of meant to be interspersed between the funeral scene so that we could kind of get the last time all of these people were sitting in this church, this is what happened. But I, again, really like it here in the beginning because it shows what Malva went through in those final days before her murder. Her narrative in that scene is so gut-wrenching. And she's talking about, I'm here today to tell you that the devil is real, that he came to her in the guise of a man, someone that she was supposed to be able to trust, and instead he stole her innocence from her. And it's a very powerful and moving narration of her situation. And at the end, she's like, I know that my child will be a bastard in your eyes, but I hope that you can find it in your hearts to treat us kindly. Malva's situation, I know with how she handled things in 606 with her accusing Jamie of being the father of her child and kind of blackballing Claire. It doesn't really set her up for success, right? Like she's not going to be a fan favorite character after that. But I think as a character in general, I do have a lot of sympathy for Malva because in a lot of ways she's a victim and I'm not going to get into it too much, but we can definitely talk about it once it's covered in the show. And I think that that'll be a very interesting episode and 
and I'll make sure to come back to this voiceover, her final hurrah of the show, and talk about some of the undercurrents and double meanings in her words, because there were a lot in there, and I do find it fascinating, and I applaud Jessica Reynolds. It was so good to see her. I'm going to miss her because she's such a great little actress, and I know she's going to do great things. So again, really liked how this episode opened because it just threw the viewer for a loop. You're like, wait a minute, didn't she die in the last episode? And then we have the credits, and then we're like, oh yeah, she's dead. This was a flashback. Once we pick up where the last episode ended, we kind of see how this event has left Claire shell-shocked. This entire season has been one blow after another for Claire, and in a time in her life where she's already struggling a lot, it's just keeps knocking her off her feet. And it's no wonder that she's not coping very well because she was already in a very vulnerable place after what happened to her in 512. But then you get all of these consistent new blows happening and she doesn't feel like she can vent to anybody or lean on them in any way. And she's trying to be strong and it's really just hurting her more and more as the season progresses. And you can see that in how unstable she is when this episode picks back up. She's very distant, zoned out, can't believe what she's seeing right now. And then when you get Alan starting to throw around these accusations that Claire's the one that murdered her, she can't even really defend herself because she's not in the right mental state. And I think Jamie is stepping up and trying to put himself between Alan, Tom, and Claire and be like, my wife wouldn't do this. But at the same time, it does look really bad. And that's what Jamie's like, what are you implying? And Tom says, your wife stands before us up to her elbows in blood. I don't think we're implying anything. It's true. It looks really bad. And of course, we know what happened as viewers because we were there for that. But imagine coming upon this scene with a woman that is kind of suspicious by nature anyway and doesn't really have the best reputation in certain circles. And then to see that she's got your daughter slash sister's dead body in front of her and that that young woman has been cut open and her unborn child ripped from her body when this unborn child is supposedly the love child of this young woman and her husband, it's very suspicious. I understand why people are throwing slanderous accusations left and right. It's crazy. But I think what was really touching about that scene is that Alan and Tom are clearly grieving over what's happening. And Tom reverts back to what he's always known, which is black and white, his staunch religious beliefs and his values of right and wrong. He doesn't believe that sinners should be buried in consecrated ground. His daughter was quite clearly a sinner. She was an unwed mother. He asks Claire, how long would she have had? How long would it have taken for her to die with this kind of injury? And Claire says it would have been quick. And he was like, so she didn't have time to pray for forgiveness then. She didn't have time to wipe her slate clean and enter the gates of heaven. I think on a parental level, Tom struggles with that, but also on a religious level, he struggles with that because you never want to contemplate the fact that your child isn't going to be accepted into heaven and that she's either doomed to purgatory or hell. You've also got the perspective that 
as a God-fearing individual, you do everything that you can do and live your life on the straight and narrow so that you can go to heaven. So why are we rewarding this whore and her illegitimate child with being buried in ground that is supposedly reserved for people that live their lives on the up and up? So that's what Tom's saying, but Jamie refuses to allow Tom bat space. He's very quiet most of that scene and trying to give Tom and Alan space to grieve and be respectful. But when Tom alludes to the fact that Malva is going to be buried in the woods somewhere with no marker for her grave and not in a cemetery, Jamie draws the line. He's like, this is ridiculous. If she's going to be buried on my ground, she's going to be buried in the cemetery. And that is that. I think he sees not only how much it is upsetting Claire, but also his own moral code just will not allow for that. Of course, in defending Malva and in making sure that she's going to be buried in the cemetery with everyone else, he is kind of furthering the assumption that he's the father of this child because he wants it buried in consecrated ground. Why would he care if he wasn't somehow emotionally attached to these two people? It does look suspicious on a lot of levels, even though he's vehemently saying, no, this is not my baby. I'm just trying to do the right thing. It's a great way to pick up this episode, reintroduce all the issues that were addressed in the last episode, and then pile on a bunch more as the episode progresses. There are a couple of other scenes related to Malva's murder that I think are key to understanding the episode in general. The first is the scene with Hiram Crombie and Jamie. Hiram Crombie is a piece of work. I do not like him in the books, and I don't like him even more in the show. He's a coward, really, like, the way that he confronts Jamie, calls his wife a murderer, calls him an adulterer, and then the second Jamie gets his hackles up and takes a step toward him, he backs away and looks down and gets all submissive. I'm just like, bro, if you're gonna walk up to somebody's doorstep and throw accusations at them, you're gonna need to have more of a backbone than what you've got. All these fisher folk, man, that are causing all of these issues for Jamie and Claire when they don't even have the full story and they're just so unwilling to have faith and confidence in the people that literally gave them the shirts off their backs a year ago and basically saved them from starvation and being exposed to the elements. Like, they had nowhere to go when they got to the United States and Jamie and Claire provided that sanctuary for them. And now they've just all of a sudden turned their backs on them. And I know I've heard it a million times over the course of promotion for season six and basically all the material that stars has put out there about how the theme of this episode is what happens when your home turns against you. That is very much the theme. You see it in most episodes over the course of the second half of this season, and it's really prevalent in 607 and 608. Jamie and Claire literally have no place to hide, and Jamie is doing his damnedest to stand between Claire and whoever's going to start throwing stuff at her because he knows that she's vulnerable right now. But Jamie's word and his presence are beginning to carry less less and less weight as we progress through the next couple of episodes to the point where in 608, they're just like, oh, fuck it. Just take him too. You know, like he could have killed her too, which is 
kind of my thought on it. I'm like, we're talking about the Perry Mason theory and who had the means, motive, and opportunity. I'm sorry, Jamie had just as much means, motive, and opportunity as Claire did to murder Malva. So why were they immediately jumping to Claire being the one who did it? Simply because Claire's the one that tried to save her. She had the blood all over her. And it seemingly has more evidence pointing at Claire than Jamie. Not saying that either one of them did it because... Clearly, we know that neither one of them did it, but it's just the fact that everybody's pointing fingers at Claire and calling her a witch and saying she's a murderess. There could be a million other suspects. I mean, obviously, we even know young Ian had a relationship to some extent with Malva. Obadiah Henderson had a relationship with Malva. So if those two had relationships with her, you know there's bound to be more people out there that are potentially jealous or angry or what have you about something that she did. And just because nobody knows about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And that's kind of where we get into this whole mystery element of this episode. When I was listening to the official podcast, they were talking about how they wanted to stay very clear of turning this into a murder mystery. They didn't want it to be the detectives of the Ridge walking around and asking for people's statements and collecting evidence. They wanted to stay away from that because that's not the kind of show that Outlander is. It's a very emotional based and they wanted to keep it that way. So I respect that. I think that they did have to include a little bit of it like they did simply to move the plot along, but I think they did a good job in kind of keeping the mystery element of it in there. The scene between Hiram and Jamie, I think also showcases something about this episode that I really like. I think that this episode was very well written. Yeah, it did have some kind of like shoe leather scenes or bridge the gap scenes, I guess, if you want to call it, but they weren't super noticeable unless somebody points them out to you and says that scene's only in there because it gets us from point A to point B. You're not really going to pick up on them, I don't think. I certainly didn't until somebody pointed them out to me. So I'm not about to point them out to you and be like, there they are. Make sure to remember that and let it bother you every time you watch this episode from here to kingdom come. So there are a couple of those scenes in there, but to be honest, the dialogue I think was really well written in this episode. There were some great pieces that were pulled from the books, not just book six, but other books as well to create this sense of character, really, that we've got going on. There were bits of dialogue between characters that almost felt poetic in the way they were written, the way they were voiced by the actors, and I really did love it. This scene with Hiram and Jamie is one of those scenes. Hiram shows up and kind of makes an offhanded remark about, do you really think it was a tragedy that Malva died and Jamie's like, Speak plainly. If you're to make unfounded accusations on my doorstep, you'll do so in no uncertain terms. And then Hiram says, You sinned in the eyes of the Lord. Did your wife forgive you for lying with a flower-faced Scottish lass? Now, Mr. Fraser, let every man be swift to hear and slow to anger. Are we all to suffer on the ridge because you regret marrying a jealous Englishwoman with a sharp tongue and even sharper knives? And then goes on to say, did your wife forgive Malva? So there we go, front and center. We have confirmation that rumors are already spreading that Claire's the one that killed Malva. While Jamie is certainly an intimidating force and Hiram Crombie is no match for him and that's why he backs down, it also takes a certain amount of balls to walk up to Jamie Fraser's house, literally standing on his doorstep, as he says. And he's like, yeah, we know your wife killed her. I love that Jamie says, if you value your life, you will think of your next words very carefully. 
probably. Which ends up backfiring because then in the next significant conversation about Malva's murder with Obadiah Henderson, we get that thrown back in his face when he says, what, are you just going to threaten me like you did with Mr. Crombie? I think that riles up the righteous indignation of the Fisher folk even more. And then they're like, we're not going to be silenced by threats. We're going to do the right thing. So Jamie's old methods of standing firm, showing how much of an alpha male he is, is kind of waning a little bit. This is the downfall of the Frasers of Frasers Ridge. They don't hold the power and sway over their settlers like they used to. I think that's very unfortunate. It's really sad to see. I think it's one of the most tragic things about this season is that Fraser's Ridge was Jamie and Claire's safe space that they created together. It was their home. And now all of a sudden, that old theme's rearing its ugly head of what do you do when your home turns against you? And we find out in the next episode. Nevertheless, the conversation with Obadiah Henderson kind of opens up a whole other view on things. As much as the Fisher folk are slowly but surely rioting and separating themselves from the control of Jamie Fraser and kind of denying that he has any authority over them as human beings because of how much a sinner he is, we also see that the one thing that is kind of reining them in is Roger's presence. And I'm glad that we got this scene with Obadiah because it really does show how they had a complete attitude with Jamie. They're like, who are you to preach to me when you're the one whose baby she was carrying? Roger steps in and says, look, I saw you with Malva. I know you were involved. And they respect Roger because he's a Protestant and another God-fearing individual. He's not some godless papist. Roger holds a lot of sway over the Fisher folk because they do view him as their minister. So it makes sense that when Roger and Bree leave the ridge at the end of this episode, that's when things really kick into high gear and things start to happen with Jamie and Claire because Roger's not there as that buffer anymore. So I think that's why this scene with Obadiah was very critical. It also shows that tension between Obadiah and Ian, so that even Ian, who a lot of people really like, yeah, some people think he's strange because of his connection with the Mohawk, but overall, he's a pretty amiable guy. People don't really have a problem with him, and they're like, why is Murray around sniffing around asking questions that he has no right to the answers? That really rubs people the wrong way when Jamie and Ian and Roger are all trying to get answers to who killed Melva. Well, the Fisher folk think it's pretty obviously there in black and white that Jamie or Claire killed Melva. So why would anybody be looking for answers elsewhere? And that's what Obadiah says. Well, maybe you should tell Murray to start sniffing closer to home. It's a whole mess, but I did think that seeing Roger's influence over Obadiah and how he kind of backs down when Roger steps in does show that level of respect that the Fisher folk don't have for Jamie. And honestly, I don't think they ever really did have respect for him at all. It was just a matter of them kind of being afraid of him a little bit, not really knowing what was going on, and that they didn't really have a reason to not like him or to treat him poorly. Well, now they do. And so they're not going to let it hold them back anymore. The funeral is the last scene directly related to Malva's murder that I think is extremely important to note. First off, the acting in it was amazing. Alexander Vlahas knocks my socks off every time I watch this scene. He gets me so emotional and like invested in the scene. He does a great job when he steps in and he swipes that 
baby's coffin from Katrina. Oh, my heart. It's so awful. And he says, you bastards, you took my sister from me and still you get to carry on with your happy little lives as if nothing's happened. Their lives are irrevocably changed. Everybody's that's in that church. I think it's easy to look at it selfishly and see how things have impacted him and even maybe his father, although I doubt he's even thinking about his father at this point in time, and how their lives are changed because of it. Malva's been taken from them by whoever killed her. But Jamie and Claire are impacted because of this too, not just because of the implications of the scandal of Jamie being this baby's father, supposedly, or Claire supposedly having killed her. Like, they loved Malva too. And so I hate to see that the community has just shut Jamie and Claire out to where Jamie's not even allowed to be a pallbearer for Malva's coffin when they're a man short. That's how distasteful Jamie's presence is to these people. And I don't think that Tom necessarily would have raised any issue with it. It's purely Alan, but as far as anybody's concerned, Alan has every right to feel that way. Seeing the image of Malva's coffin and the baby's coffin was a very powerful image. For Claire, watching that child's coffin get left behind as Malva is taken outside, I imagine was just extremely painful for her on a whole other level because of her own personal history with losing her daughter Faith. That was another reason that she was so strongly impacted by finding Malva's body and doing that emergency C-section was she held that little child in the palm of her hand and tried so hard to keep him alive because I think it's lost on a lot of viewers, but that baby was actually still alive when Claire pulled it out of Malva. She felt this flicker of life in him, and that's why they mentioned it in the dialogue, that Malva Christie was full of light and life, and I felt that same spark when I held her tiny son in my hands. She fought hard for him because she didn't want to lose that baby. It's very scarring, especially having held your own stillborn child that was of a similar size, and there was nothing you could do to help them, but she's in a better position to try to help this baby. She gave it everything she had, but was still too late. He was still too little. So that is a lot of it. And when Claire sees his little coffin just laying there, like everybody forgot about him, that stirs something in her. And she doesn't want him to be forgotten. And she doesn't want him to be separated from his mother. And so she picks up his coffin to take it out of the church. And that's when all hell breaks loose. But it's a very powerful moment. And I think that every Everybody did a fantastic job stepping up their game to provide this just tension-filled, tear-inducing moment. The controversial part, well, one of the controversial parts of this entire episode is been dubbed throughout the fandom as the thruple, Lizzie and the Beardsley twins. And I haven't really spoken a lot about it because to be quite honest, I like to pretend that it doesn't exist in my own little world. That is one of the things that I tune out of the Outlander universe. It bugs the shit out of me. I cannot stand the storyline in books or show. And so I probably won't talk about it very much past this episode because I just don't like it. But it is included in the episode, so I will discuss it, albeit probably for a limited amount of time. A couple of things to note about this episode is that they did kind of dot in the Lizzie and the Beardsley twin chemistry throughout the season, but it was so in your face, (laughs) like clearly inserted as a breadcrumb. It wasn't subtle at all. That is literally the here's your sign of this episode. 
Why do you have leaves in your hair, Lizzie? Where have you been, Lizzie? Oh, I was out feeding the horses. Just kidding. I was out having sex with the twins. I don't like it. And I don't feel like it was included very well. I was listening to the podcast again, kind of trying to get my bearings and see how the writers felt and the producers felt about all the material that's been presented because these episodes are very full of material. Whether we like it or not, there's a lot to cover. This is one of those things that they said, they're like, well, we wanted to make sure we got it in but we didn't know quite where it fit. And it bounced back and forth between several episodes before it eventually landed here. Whenever I hear phrases like that, I'm just like, why the hell is it even in here? If you weren't really sure where it fit in the first place, because I'm sorry, it still doesn't feel like it fit in this episode at all. The storylines don't mesh at all. And I felt like they had this murder mystery element cooked up to present the possibility that Malva was murdered because she was a unwed mother. And then, oh my God, Lizzie's in the same trouble because she's pregnant from one of the Beardsley twins. Well, which one? She's not sure because she's sleeping with both. I felt like the humor didn't really land like it did even in the books because there were certain characters that were missing from that story that they don't have in the show because it's the show and they just don't have time to build all of these characters that we have in the books. And I understand that. That makes sense. But then when you try to include somebody's storyline, when you don't have all the puzzle pieces, it gets hairy and you're not making the same statement in the show that you're making in the books. It becomes more of an issue, I guess. And like I said, I didn't really care for it in the books, but I really didn't care for it in the show. And I think it's simply because of how it's presented. Whenever it all comes out that Lizzie is pregnant and Claire and Lizzie are having the conversation about what exactly happened and how it happened, Lizzie tells the story and then Claire's like, look, I'm glad you're enjoying yourself, but this is not okay. And nobody's gonna think it's okay okay, if the Fisher folk find out about this, they will stone you for fornication. And she's like, what do you mean? We're not hurting anybody. It's nobody's business but ours. And Claire looks at her and says, anything that happens here is everybody's business. That line from Lizzie just, it made me sit up and think, what the hell? That line seemed really odd for this situation because of what we have just witnessed over the course of the last episode and a half. So either the writer fluffed up in how they wrote it, Lizzie is stupid, or just very selfish. Maybe a combination of all three. I don't know. But the fact that Lizzie could straight up say after what Jamie and Claire have been experiencing with the whole Malva pregnancy rumor scandal and how everybody took to that and it spread like wildfire and Jamie and Claire are basically have become pariahs in their own home because of that. And then right on the heels of it, this all comes out and Lizzie thinks it's not going to impact anybody because they're quote unquote, not hurting anybody. Who the hell was Jamie supposedly hurting? I guess Claire, but they're clearly still married. And why is that anybody's business? Oh, wait, it's not, but they still make it their business. So what makes Lizzie think it's going to be any different for her? So that line just really struck me as weird and oddly naive for Lizzie, who seems to be a fairly street smart person. I will say that the discussion with Claire, the looks on Katrina's face were perfect for how I probably would have looked if I had been in that conversation. Like, how exactly do you react to a 17-year-old girl telling you that she is in an active menage a trois with... <laughs> 
twin brothers and that they're like one soul in two bodies and they're identical in every way. Like, oh my God, it's so awkward. And she just has to sit there and take it. And I'm like, ugh. I guess that's where her being a doctor probably comes in handy because there's probably not a lot that Claire hasn't heard over the course of being a medical professional. But still, I don't know how Claire kept a straight face during any of that conversation. And then you've got the flip side of it with the uh, down to brass tacks scene with Jamie coming off the heels of Malva's funeral and he's really not in the mood for games. He's been looking for Joe and Kezi for the better part of a few days now trying to get this sorted and he's like, I'm done. Tell me where they are. And this is the scene where I'm like, okay, I get Jamie here. He handles this probably a lot more like I would have. And that makes me think, was I part of the 18th century in a previous life? Because for no explainable reason, I have these really old school default settings, I guess. (laughs) And uh, so things like this where I'm like, yeah, I get where he's coming from, even though I'm not like staunchly religious and not in a overly conservative life myself. I just don't know why I tend to agree with the more conservative portions (laughs) of these characters' opinions. Jamie is basically confronts Lizzie and says, I didn't say you were a whore, but others will. What more can they say about a woman that goes around spreading her legs for two men and is pregnant with a child with no father to give it a name. And she's like, I do know his name and his name will be Beardsley. And it's like, hun, you missed the point. (laughs) You're so far past the point. Do you not know what world you live in? Like, I guess you can kind of make the argument that living around all these time travelers who have these more modern views on life, maybe they're starting to rub off on Lizzie. But honestly, that kind of thing was not even a thing in the 60s where they came from. Yeah, there was a lot of sexual experimentation and really being one with your body and exploring yourself personally. And I get that. But I don't think it was okay to have a thruple even in the 60s. So I'm not really sure where she's coming up with these weird perspectives on life. I love that Jamie's like, because this is where Lizzie says, they're one soul and two bodies. And Jamie looks at her and says, if you care about that soul, you'll have those two bodies in front of me imminently. <laughs> Lizzie just kind of gets this. Oh crap look on her face. I really do feel bad for Jamie in this situation because the man is just running around like a chicken with his head cut off, trying to put out fires, but no matter how fast he runs, he can't get him put out fast enough. And that's exactly what I thought when he quickly hand fasts Kezi and Lizzie and then storms off and Claire looks at them, kind of gives them this sympathetic half smile and then runs after Jamie. It's just like, okay, that's done. I'm moving on to the next problem. And he doesn't even have time to think between actions. It's just go, 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 go. And it's still not enough. So I really do feel for him. And then when you look at how people berate on him for not noticing that Claire has had this ether dependency for over a year at this point, look at all the shit he's had to deal with. And yes, I'm critical of that too. I think that it should not have taken this long for Jamie to approach Claire about her ether problem. But at the same time, 
time, he's had a lot on his plate too. So I do think that we have to give him a little bit of grace in that sense. Claire's struggle in general is probably the biggest topic to discuss. The most important topic, I guess, in that it's one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial, things that happen in season six as a whole. It separated the fandom. There were a lot of online arguments about this stuff. And I know some of you have commented your displeasure on the Ether storyline as well. I don't actually mind it. And I think that... Tony Graffia put it in a pretty good way whenever she said that she doesn't view Claire's ether dependency as a weakness. It's simply a coping mechanism and that her ether dependency actually advocates for her being a very strong character and that she's trying to deal with this all on her own and not bring other people into her problems because she knows how much everybody else is dealing with and she doesn't want to pile onto that. Book readers should not view Claire's ether as completely out of character. And even Diana Gabaldon has said this. We see Claire highly dependent on alcohol for a good portion of book six and seven. And she even leans on it very heavily in season one after she first travels through the stones. So it's not unheard of for Claire to use substances as crutches to get through the day. And she's in a darker place than she's ever been before. This is next level shit that she's dealing with. She doesn't even deal with stuff on this kind of level in the books. So when you look at the fact that she's in the worst mental state that she's ever been in her entire life and that everything is coming apart at the seams and she can't control the darkness that's inside of her, all she wants to do is shut it off. And the only way that she can do that is with ether. Alcohol's not even working anymore. We saw that when she first comes back into the study after they bring Malva's body in and she just runs in and she's like, hugging some brandy. It's not helping. It's not even putting a dent in her anxiety. And she's trying to avoid the ether. She knows it's not healthy. That doctor portion of her is saying, "Mm, this is not a good idea. Like we shouldn't be doing this, but she's got to have something to get her through the day. And she knows how much Jamie is going through. And I don't think she wants to pile onto his plate, but also it really bugs her to show weakness in front of Jamie, because I think that for so long, she is needed to be the strong one that in Admitting that she's not as strong as everybody thinks she is, is kind of shameful to her at this point in her life. So I get it. It made complete sense to me for her to have this ether dependency. People talk about how dangerous ether is and how unrealistic it is and blah, blah, blah. She made it in the books. She didn't use it in the books for herself, but she still knew how to make it and used it on other people in the books. So yeah, it might be dangerous, but also it's not a completely fabricated and new thing that the show came up with. This is a faithful adaptation in that way, that the ether was actually a plot device in A Breath of Snow and Ashes and further on into the series. So it was very important for it to occur in this season. I think the big thing that Claire is struggling with is that she's been through so much in her life and she's been able to compartmentalize it for so long and put everything in its own little box and you can open the lid and peek at it every once in a while but each individual thing doesn't flow over into another thing and she's been able to keep them separate and kind of keep it from overwhelming her so that she can function on a daily basis but what's happening is at the end of season five with her rape and assault that undid her in a lot of ways 
it created so much excess mental stress that there's not room left in any of the boxes to cram it in. And so the harder she tries to slam the door, the harder it springs back up in her face. And that's where we get the manifestation of Lionel. A lot of people took issue with Lionel's appearance in season six because they're like, holy shit, she's cray cray. You know, she's seeing things and she's talking to the things that she's seeing. And it's like mental breakdown, psychological issues, you know? And it is, but also when you're looking at it as a storytelling device, the books are in Claire's perspective. So we're getting all of this internal turmoil without having such crazy things happening. Whereas Lionel's existence isn't Claire's imagination of him haunting her. He's not a ghost. He's literally the manifestation of everything that's going on in her head. And we see that in the way that Lionel speaks whenever he's manifested in Claire's head or on the screen and she's looking at him and interacting with him. Everything that he says is in a cadence or a dialect that is specific to Claire. Everything that he says is not 18th century dialogue. It's very much something that Claire herself would say. And so whenever he's saying, so what, you think Hiram Crombie come begging for a cup of sugar? He just about has the measure of you. Or pull yourself together. You don't want Jamie to rush in and comfort you. He can't save you from yourself. So these are not things that Lionel Brown would say, but they are certainly things that Claire is thinking to herself. It gets more and more pronounced as the episode progresses to the point where, especially in previous episodes in this season, Lionel has been a shadow in the mirror or a reflection in the door window, just kind of out of focus standing behind her. And that's how this episode episode starts. But eventually, once we get to the point where Lizzie admits that she was the one banging on the door and Claire gives herself just a slight bit of relief, she's like, okay, I wasn't responsible for Malva's murder and I can start to get over this hump now. And she puts the Ferguson mask away. She puts the ether away and she turns around and Lionel is staring at her across the table in her surgery. And he says, you can't get rid of me that easily. And she says, I didn't do it. And he says, you think that matters? I think it's easy for the majority of this episode to think that Claire is really just drowning in all of this guilt and grief over Malva. And at the beginning of the season, it's really easy to think that her inability to sleep and her nightmares and everything are directly related to her trauma from season five. But it's so much more than that. And that's what we begin to see over the course of this episode. It's really highlighted in her voiceover from the middle of this episode when she's kind of standing in her bedroom and looking out the window. The voiceover says, funny, we never say we're only human when we've done something good or worthy of praise. Instead, it's what we tell ourselves to excuse our mistakes, an effort, perhaps, to convince ourselves that the person we see looking back at us in the mirror really isn't so bad. But who was I now? What was I now? Claire Elizabeth Beecham, Dr. Randall, Mistress Fraser, wife, mother, grandmother, witch, murderer, 
And then Lionel's voice comes in and says, murderess suits best. Claire is having a crisis within herself. There was a lot of debate over what this voiceover meant and was it appropriate for this episode? I remember having this conversation with a friend when season six actually aired. I wasn't quite sure what to make of the voiceover and a lot of people weren't. They're like, okay, is this the writer taking a shot at just waxing poetic on the human condition? Like, what is this? Why is this relevant to the episode? And I know that as a writer, you don't just put something in for it to just be there or just because you think it's cool. Like it has a purpose. It has a function. And so when I was comparing this voiceover to everything that was happening on the screen while the voiceover was going, which it was shots of Alan Christie and Tom Christie and Lizzie and the Beardsley boys all interacting, I got to thinking about those words. What does it mean whenever Claire says, you only say you're human to excuse your own shortcomings? Then I was thinking, well, When you compare that to the big scene at the end of this episode where she finally comes clean to Jamie and she's saying, my selfishness is what has caused everybody's pain and suffering in my life. And that that is a really heavy burden for her to carry. She feels like she's made a lot of mistakes in her life. And those mistakes have led to some of the darkest moments in her loved one's lives. There's a part of her that thinks, that even going back for Jamie the second time was a mistake because of everything that happened to Brianna and Roger as a result. She thinks that this whole ether dependency that she has is a mistake. Avoiding Malva was a mistake that cost Malva her life. And yeah, she's only human. What was she supposed to do when the woman that is accusing her husband of adultery is coming to the house to confront her. Was she supposed to answer the door, welcome her in? Hey, how you doing? What you need? No, she's only human. And so that voiceover really struck at me this time because I was like, okay, she's telling us kind of what the condition of her mental state is right now without coming out and saying it to every other character. It's actually was a very critical voiceover in my opinion because it does show why she's struggling so much, why all of these things are suddenly bubbling back to the surface. It's not just about the trauma. I mean, there is a lot of trauma in her life, but there's a lot of other stuff going on, a lot of self-blame being placed in a lot of things that she feels like she could do differently, but inherently made mistakes or thought she made mistakes that cost a lot for the people that she loved. There were some really good visual representations and audio representations of Claire's PTSD and emotional distress in this episode that I thought were really cool. So I'll mention them really quick because I know this episode is running long. I thought that the growing of Lionel's hand out of the sleeve of Malva's dress was so fucking creepy, but so cool as well because it really does kind of show how Lionel is literally manifesting out of this distress that Claire feels over the loss of Malva. And then all of a sudden he's there and she hears his voice and she's dealing with that internal struggle again. And another one that I also thought was extremely creepy but extremely powerful was when she was laying in bed. There's moonlight coming through the window and 
and you see Lionel over in the corner sitting on the ground just staring at her. Well, not only does it super creep me out and I understand why Claire was like covering her face, but also the fact that he's not right next to her like he normally is when she's alone because Jamie's right next to her and he is her buffer a lot. He kind of quiets the voice in her head a little bit whenever he's near. But on the flip side of that, at the end, when Jamie finally does have the scene with her where she tells him everything, Jamie's presence doesn't make Lionel go away in the surgery initially. He walks into the surgery right past Lionel and it freaks Claire out because she's used to Jamie being that buffer and that safe harbor for her. So it really does show the mental degradation of Claire's character over the course of this episode that at the beginning, Jamie was still keeping the nightmare at bay a little bit. And then by the end, Lionel's presence is so strong that not even Jamie can make him go away. If nothing else, the conversation between Jamie and Claire really shows how sharing your distress with the one that you love the most and letting them help you is probably some of the best medicine that you can have. In that scene where Lionel is staring at Claire in the bedroom, it's kind of silent. There's no music or anything. And then you just hear the clock tick, tick, tick. And that's not the first time that that happens in the episode. The first time was when Claire goes to the library or whatever to get a drink and she pops the stopper out of the decanter and sets it on the tray and you can hear it rolling back and forth, rolling back and forth. And it's all you hear. That kind of hypersensitivity to sound is something that is very common in PTSD patients. It just drives you up a wall, this being able to hear the tiniest little thing and that's all you can focus on. When you're already so stressed out and then there's something that you just can't take your mind off of, it's like the only thing that's echoing around in your brain, it's enough to drive you nuts. And that is something that they really showed very well in this episode is not just showing us in how the actors are portraying things, but showing us in what we're seeing visually as far as the hand growing out of the sleeve, the clock ticking, just the little things that really amp up the tension and really light it up for us to understand on a whole new level what we're seeing with Claire, what she's really experiencing. Because I think it's been a while since we've had an episode that's really been in her head so much. Whenever I I kind of saw the big touch points for this episode and what Claire was really struggling with. The immediate thing that I thought of was the voiceover for the season premiere. And it says, I've never been afraid of ghosts. I live with them daily. When I look in a mirror, my mother's eyes look back at me. My mouth curls with the same smile that lured my great grandfather to the fate that was me. Of course, it isn't these homely ghosts that trouble sleep and curdle wakefulness. Look back. Hold a torch to light the recesses of the dark. Listen to the footsteps that echo behind you when you walk alone. All the time, ghosts flit past and through us, hiding in the future. Each ghost comes unbidden from the misty grounds of dream and silence. Our rational minds say, no, it isn't. But another part, an older part, echoes always softly in the dark. Yes, but it could be. By blood and by choice, we make our ghosts. We haunt ourselves. So when we look 
at that voiceover, it really has such a powerful ring to it because when we first got that quote, it was when Claire was starting this ether journey and now seeing how far she's come and how quickly she has gone down the rabbit hole of psychological intensity, it really does just throw a whole other spin on it because what she's dealing with, with seeing things and hearing things, it's all in her head. She is projecting every objection, every critical thought, every doubt and struggle that she's ever had into this manifestation of Lionel Brown. And he's just standing there taunting her and telling her how ill-equipped and incapable she is to handle everything that's going to be thrown her way. And it's really screwing with her to kind of get that line, by blood and by choice, we make our ghosts. We haunt ourselves. She is certainly haunting herself at this point. I love that callback from the plot of this episode and where this season really started. Also, speaking of breaking points, Claire had another one of those like trauma flashback compilations in this episode, and I counted many more voices. I think it was a longer version than the one that we got in the first episode, which was kind of another echo back to the season premiere. We get a flash of Claire getting ready to put her hand on the stone and then different voices all through. These are just the ones that I was able to pick out, but we get Frank, Blackjack Randall, Colum, Father Bane, Lionel Brown, Dougal, Galus, Richard Brown, the character Cosworth from season three when she was on the plague ship. And even Jamie is in there. His voice is in there. It's uh, whenever he is saying a light action can have very serious consequences. So there are all these whispers of these traumatic events, but then even some of the people that she dearly loved in life, Frank and Jamie, they're in there too. And I think that that really really just shows her conflicted nature and really what she's struggling with, with everything just bubbling up to the surface over the course of this episode. That definitely is where all of her ghosts are coming from. And I think that it was a very clever way to kind of construe that as well. But given all of that, like the echoes between the premiere and this episode, I was thinking honestly, and the cliffhanger for uh, 607, that this would have been a good season finale as well if they didn't want to go all the way to eight. They really could have ended this at several different points across the season, given their time constraints and the fact that Katrina was pregnant. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad we got eight episodes instead of seven. So the conversation with Jamie, it's probably the most important thing about the entire episode, if I'm being honest. It is a fantastically written scene, a fantastically acted scene. There's really nothing I can critique about it, if I'm being honest. And it is one of the reasons that in my knee-jerk reactions that I did while the season was airing on my TSF Obsessed Next page, I gave this episode a really high score. Despite the fact that I did not like the Beardsley storyline at all, it scored really high because Jamie and Claire were finally on the same page again. And I felt like this episode was so beautifully put together to encompass everything that Claire was going through. This scene between Jamie and Claire is is so powerful. I've said it before on this podcast, but I'm not really a crier. I don't get emotional very easily when I'm watching movies or TV shows. I think I can probably say that I've only cried at Outlander a handful of times, maybe six or seven times over the course of the entire series. So for me to cry repeatedly when I watch this episode, like I cried tonight watching this before I recorded this episode because it's so powerful. 
powerful. Jamie and Claire have been separated from each other for much of this season, not physically, but emotionally. They just weren't connecting like they normally do. And I think it's just because Jamie has had so much on his plate with the Indian agent storyline and deciding when he was going to declare for liberty and then all the stuff with Tom Christie and the Fisher folk. It's just been a lot. And so you can rag on Jamie all you want about not noticing that Claire was in distress like she was. But honestly, I don't think it's that. Tony Graffian made a really good point in one of the episodes. She's like, Jamie's not stupid. He knows that she's going through something, that something is happening with her. But it's about him picking the right moment because when someone you love is going through something or they have an addiction or they are massively depressed and suicidal, you have to pick your moment to where they're going to be receptive to whatever you have to offer them. Jamie knows that. He's been down this road before where he was going through a lot of similar things to what Claire is going through now after the events of Wentworth. He was having really terrible nightmares and flashbacks, really bad PTSD, and wasn't really sleeping a lot. He didn't have ether, but if he did, he probably would have used it. So I don't think that there was ever a real valid reason for Claire to think that Jamie would ever judge her or look at her differently because he knows what she's going through. I think the big thing there is that he just wishes that she could feel like she could talk to him. But honestly, Claire is an inherently honest person and she normally does come out and say things that are bothering her when she's talking to Jamie. She's normally a very open person. So I think Jamie's probably just trying to give her space to cope on her own and figures when she's ready to talk talk, she'll talk. And I think that's even something that Sam said whenever they asked him about it. Why is it taking Jamie so long to offer Claire any sort of support? And he's like, he doesn't want to be in her face. He doesn't want to push. He doesn't want to pry. He figures if she wants to talk about it, she knows that he's there and ready to listen whenever she needs him. I think it just took a long time for Claire to get to that point. So this scene where Claire finally admits to Jamie, you're going to think I'm crazy for the things that, that are happening to me. I'm seeing things. I hear voices. I have this darkness in me that I can't suppress. It's eating me alive. And I know I didn't kill Malva, but I really wanted to. And Claire has never felt that kind of darkness before. Jamie knows what that darkness feels like. That's what he felt with Blackjack in that need for vengeance and that absolute hatred. And I don't even think that it's that Claire hates Malva. I really think that she's just so hurt by what happened. And she knows how much trouble this one girl has caused her and her family. She wants it to go away. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And that's what Jamie said. He's like, we all have a darkness inside of us, Sassnack. She says, but I feel like this is possessing me. And I think that was Jamie's first red flag because possess is a very strong word. That kind of gives the vibe that she can't control it. It consumes her. I feel like this was one gut punch after another. Like Sam did a very good job. He's so good at having these scenes where he just listens. And that's one thing that Katrina has said about working with Sam. He's so fantastic about really listening. When he's in a scene with you, he's in a scene with you 100%. And you can play off of that. You can feed off of that. And you can see it in the way that Sam's face is. He's not telling himself, okay, now I need to look sad. Now I need to look upset. He's genuinely 
listening to what Katrina is saying and letting those emotions come out in his face. So when Claire is telling Jamie all of these things, like, I hear voices, I see Lionel, he's taunting me. I feel like time traveling back to you was a mistake because every bad thing that has ever happened to anybody ever is my fault because I changed things. Everything that Claire has been dealing with and it's all coming out and every time she reveals something new that she's struggling with, you can see Jamie struggling with it more and more and more. And there's tears welling in his eyes and then he he finally just has to look down. He can't make eye contact with her anymore. And he clenches his jaw, takes a deep breath and he looks back at her and he lets her keep going. But it's a very strong moment. And I think then when he approaches her and he says, look, you have to trust me and you have to lean on me and I can't help you if you're putting yourself to sleep. You need to let me in like I did with you after Wentworth. You're the only reason I got through that. Please let me do the same for you and we'll get through this together. That kind of moment between characters, especially in a show where the main draw for people is Jamie and Claire and seeing how much they've kind of struggled to connect all season, I think just makes it so much more powerful to see. And then honestly, at the end, after Claire gives this litany of what she's been struggling with and she says, but I would do it all again to be with you. That's when I lose it. And Oh, you know, when she wraps her arms around him and it showed her putting her hand on his back, it looked so familiar to me and I could not figure out why it looked familiar. And then I was listening to a analysis on Outlander Cast Clan Book Club with my friend Angela. And she mentioned that it's pretty much the exact same shot from To Ransom a Man's Soul in season one when Jamie puts his hand on Claire's back. And I was like, oh, you're right. And it's so perfect because it's this moment of reconnection. She finally trusts him and he trusts her. And I thought it was really perfect and poetic because the producers were even talking about how they felt like this episode in a lot of ways was a mirror to To Ransom a Man's Soul, the season one finale, because there's this great give and take between Jamie and Claire over the course of their relationship where one of them does something for the the other. And then a couple seasons later, that person does the same thing for the other person. So it really did. It clicked in that moment. And you know what? I should have probably put it together earlier because even last episode, I was mentioning how there were certain things that reminded me of that episode versus Monsters and Heroes in season five for the exact same reason. It was something that happened to Jamie that Claire was struggling with in season five. And then they flipped it on its head. And it was something that was happening to Claire that Jamie was struggling with. season six. So they're very correct in that there's something inherently connective about them as a couple, even across the seasons. One thing that I think is really important in this episode and is actually a culmination of a lot of things that have been building for a long time is Roger finally decided to bite the bullet and become a minister in this episode. I think he thought he was going to get a lot more pushback than he actually did. I love that he brought it up to Jamie first because 
that really showcases how much Jamie and Roger's relationship has grown over the course of the past two seasons and some change. To know that Roger can come to Jamie and air his concerns and have a very intimate, almost father-son connection with him. And it all starts because Archbug was making fun of Roger because he's going to go slaughter a sow and ask Roger if he wanted to help or whatever. And Roger's like, I don't know why it bothers me so much when we both know. And Jamie says that you killed a man. And this really spawns this conversation about how the Bible's written and thou shalt not kill. And Jamie says, you know what? Pay no heed to thou shalt not kill because in Greek and Hebrew scriptures, the word murder is used. And Malva Christie was murdered. What you did to that Brownsville man is not the same thing. To be quite honest, God is your judge. Roger Mack. It's not for anyone else to decide whether what you did was right or wrong. You need to make it right with God and everything else will fall into place. So despite the fact that there is a definite spiritual gap between them because Jamie is Catholic and Roger is Protestant, I do feel like they can have these conversations with each other because Jamie is a very faith-driven man and so is Roger and they both know the Bible. So they can discuss interpretations and history and things like this and really bounce off of one another, give each other advice. And I feel like that is one thing that's really great about Jamie and Roger. And Jamie has had his eye on Roger this whole season. He sees how well Roger has embraced this role of being a minister. And he says to Roger, I can see that you want to take care of them. Roger says, I don't even know if that's it. Like, that's honestly the last thing that crossed my mind. But he says, it's the burials and the christenings and maybe just being able to help by praying or lending an ear. Roger is driven to serve and he's being called to this. Jamie sees that. He sees how much of a force for good Roger is and how having a purpose has made him so much more effective and so much more confident in his actions moving forward. So when Roger says, I don't think there's a minister coming and somebody has to do it and I think it has to be me. Jamie just says, I have eyes to see it, lad. Like, I saw it coming and I think you'd be great. He's very supportive and also puts Roger's mind at ease about Brianna having any qualms about it because he says she has eyes too. Like she knows how good you are at this and she knows how much you want it. And when you put it like that, she's not going to tell you no. And I think that Brie does have some valid concerns, especially seeing how demanding of a job it's going to be. That, like she said, you're on call at all hours of the night, people crying at our kitchen table. And how is this going to affect our family? And Roger has one of the best Roger lines I think I have ever heard when he says, I swear to you, Brie, whatever I'm called to do, I was called to be your husband and a father first. Whatever I do will not come at the price of my family. He is committing to her right then and there that yes, he has a calling to be a minister and he wants to help people, but no matter what, his family and her come first. I love that. He's such a family man. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up my analysis of 607 Sticks and Stones. Performance of the episode goes to Katrina Balf because how can you not have a psychological breakdown on screen and not get credit for it? So... Oh my God, Katrina was phenomenal this episode. I felt so many feels watching her. I felt sympathy. I felt emotional turmoil, joy, rage, extreme sadness, all of it with her. She did amazing. And then my honorable mention was Alexander Vlahas because
because, like I said, his acting in the funeral scene was great. It was so great. I don't know what's in his future, but I'm honestly excited to see it. It's going to be good. I really enjoy having him in the Outlander family. And then my quote of the episode is more of a lighthearted one. When... Joe and Lizzie go to be handfast at Roger and Breeze, and Roger said, just let me put my britches on. I'm not conducting my first wedding bare arsed. Just a little chuckle, you know, and everybody's just so happy because Joe and Lizzie think they're getting one over on Roger and Bree, and Roger and Bree are just so happy that A, Roger gets to perform his first wedding, and B, that Bree is just bubbling with excitement for her friend, and it was a really cute scene. So yeah, that was my quote of the episode. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up what I have to say on 607 Sticks and Stones. But as always, I opened it up for you guys to let me know what you thought on the episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Joan Cohen says, I know a lot of viewers didn't like the Ether storyline, but I actually thought it worked reasonably well, as long as I suspend disbelief about the difficulties and danger in making Ether. <laughs> oh, well. Claire was raised in a man's world with no female role models, so she tends to take on masculine, albeit cliched, traits. Stoicism, keeping her emotions under wraps, and not letting anyone see her weaknesses. We've also seen her literally run away from stressful moments, Leary and Malva. Normally, she processes her emotions once she has the space to do it, but this time she had suppressed her memories to such an extent that she's spiraling out of control. She isn't thinking logically and is afraid to open Pandora's box on her emotions, so it's not surprising that she turned to something so completely out of character. Using the specter of Lionel Brown was a really clever way to show her state of mind, especially as he becomes more and more physically present as the season progresses. I have mixed feelings about Jamie not recognizing Claire's mental state. On the one hand, he's been distracted with multiple multitudes of issues, as well as wrestling with his own conscience about arming the Indians and switching sides. On the other hand, he's normally so attuned to Claire that it's hard to believe he'd miss the signs. Perhaps it's a combo of her sufficiently hiding her state of mind and his own exhaustion at having to manage so much. The poor guy can't catch a break. Either way, I'm glad Ethergate seems to have come to a head. This episode was pretty dark, although I enjoyed it overall. I wish we had gotten a little more comic relief from Lizzie and the Beardsley thruple. The episode definitely needed it. All right, lots to unpack there. Yeah, I definitely thought that Lionel appearing more and more regularly and his image manifesting more solidly over the course of the season really went a long way to portray Claire's growing anxiety and and mental issues, I guess, mental stability, if we want to call it that. So I would agree with you there. Like I said, I too struggle with the Jamie situation because yeah, go ahead, give Claire space. And I do think that the first time he was laying in bed and she walked down to the kitchen, like I really do think that he thought she was going for a cup of tea. I don't think that he immediately knew that she had this ether dependency. But again, something that is very easy to miss as a viewer is how much time is passing in this show. And it has been at least a year, if not more, from the season six premiere all the way to the season six finale. So I'm actually thinking it's like 18 months, if I'm being honest and remembering correctly. So that's the part that I have trouble with. Not that Jamie was giving her space or just didn't know. It's that it took him so long to get to a place where he felt like he could approach her about it, given how close Jamie and Claire really are. Like that's a year 
fear of pretending everything's okay and letting her go at her own pace. I get wanting to let them deal with it in their own space and on their own time, but man, that's a long time to let somebody sit with something so terrible. And I think Claire did a good job of hiding it, but at the same time, that was a miss for him, I think. (laughs) Peter Andrioli says, the fact that the logical, intelligent, cautious Claire abused the ether clearly showed the after effects of the trauma she had suffered, not just during her kidnapping and rape, but throughout her life. Absolutely. That's why I don't really think that it was that out of character. She's gone through a lot and I think it's getting harder and harder for her to be able to cope with things. Her good old reliable coping mechanisms of compartmentalizing is not working anymore and she's got to find something else. And, you know, she already leans on alcohol in times of stress. So why not ether? I don't know. It just didn't seem that much of a stretch to me, but I know it did for some people. Final comment of the night is from Melanie Wyatt. She said, I liked the opening scene with the four standing around Malva's body and hearing each character express their feelings about Malva. I also thought the funeral scene was very good. I did wonder why there was no scene between Claire and Brie in this episode where Brie would have been supporting Claire. Maybe it was COVID filming issues. I didn't think that Jamie was totally unaware of Claire's emotional stress and his response to her guilty feelings was what she needed to hear. I thought using Lionel was effective, but I hope that's the last we see of him. He gives me the creeps like Stephen Bonnet did. I like the scenes with Roger and Jamie and Roger and Bree telling them he feels called to be ordained as a minister. Now she can stop telling him he's not a minister. The one scene that confused me in this episode was the conversation between Roger and Mr. Bug, where Mr. Bug seems to really dislike Roger. Maybe it will carry over to next season? Glad Lizzie got married and it followed the book version. Yeah, so the tension between Roger and Mr. Bug, I think really stems from the fact that a lot of people still view Roger as inadequate. Roger is kind of doesn't like violence. And I think that rubs a lot of people the wrong way because back in the 18th century, you did what you had to do to survive. You hunted, you slaughtered pigs. And that's just not something that Roger likes to do. And it's not that anybody likes to do it, but they didn't really have an issue with it. And so that really led to the conversation between Jamie and Roger about violence and how Roger is saying, you know, I don't think that I could join an army, but I definitely think that I could defend people in need. And that's when Jamie says that's good enough for me. Yeah, I think that's part of Mr. Bug's issue with Roger. I also think that they're trying to develop the bugs a little bit more because I will say that the Mrs. Bug that we got in this episode was a lot closer to book version of Mrs. Bug than we have previously seen in the show. So I think they're trying to develop these characters, but I'm a little worried that they left it too little too late and now it just feels out of place. So I hope that's not the case, but I think that's what was going on with Mr. Bug and Roger. Alrighty guys, that wraps up what I have to say on Season 6, Episode 7. Some casting news. As far as Outlander goes, we got news today that Chris Fulton will join the Outlander Season 7 cast as Rob Cameron. For those of you that know who Rob Cameron is, I think we're in for a good one. You will know him from Bridgerton. So if you want to check out Chris Fulton to know what you are kind of in store for with Season 7, you can check him out on Bridgerton. They also wrapped the fourth block of filming this week per Sam Hewen and Meryl Davis. So we officially have eight 
episodes in the can for season seven, halfway done, my friends, with filming. They just got done off of hiatus a few weeks ago, and it does kind of make me wonder if they're going to be splitting this season in half, part one and part two, like they did with season one. Hopefully, we will find out shortly. New York Comic Con is in a couple weeks. You can buy digital passes to access Diana Gabaldon's panel and um, Sam Hewen, David Barry, and Duncan LaCroix's panel. Those will all be available with the digital pass. There's no official stars panel, so it's not likely that we're going to get a teaser trailer or any sort of news at all on that front, but you never know what's going to happen since there aren't any powers that be there to police spoilers. Always good to watch the Comic-Con panels. That is going to be the weekend of October 6th through the 9th with the panels for Outlander taking place on Saturday and Sunday, the 8th and the 9th. I believe tickets are still available for select days. So if you live in the New York area and you want to go check it out in person, feel free to go on to the New York Comic Con website and see if there are tickets. Also, I am doing Droughtlander Book Club in two parts this time for the Sapphire Brooch by Katherine Lowry Logan. That's going to be on October 22nd and October 29th, both Saturdays at 4 p.m. Eastern time. If you would like to join me for the Sapphire Brooch discussion, make sure to join my group TSF Obsassinax on Facebook. Just make sure to answer all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules and somebody will approve your request shortly. But before we get to Droughtlander Book Club on October 1st at 4 p.m. Eastern time, Angela is coming by to talk about all things season six in my episode season six superlatives. That is also going to be a Facebook live on TSF Obsassinax. So you you don't want to miss it. With all of that out of the way, I'm going to sign off for today. Make sure to join me next week for my discussion on the season six finale. I am not alone. And with that, you guys have a fantastic week. Stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.